From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigiter.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Groundsman Conversation. Joining me, my two fellow boiler suit wearing lunatics, Giles Morgan and Roger Mitchell. Giles, welcome, mate. Hello, Grant. How lovely to uh, to sweep the wickets with you again, if that's what we're doing today. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> I never know if that's a euphemism or not, Charles, but I'm going to take advice on that and I'll get back to you. Rog? Rog, Well, well um, I've just been in Glasgow for two or three days and I can tell you for sure that that would never be a phrase you would hear up there. <laughs> sweep the wickets. Well, no, you probably get, get your wickets swept outside of Glasgow pub many times on a Friday night, I would think. <laughs> well, gents, we have, um, we have a guest joining us uh, in a wee while, uh, who we'll get to shortly. But uh, before that, as always, plenty to catch the eye in the world of sport. Uh, Giles, I've got a feeling I know what you're going to talk about, so I'm going to let you go first. Well, it's a, it is a list, isn't it? it? This is Sport is the gift that keeps on giving to us. I mean, well done for setting up a podcast all those years ago. Who knew that there would be stories? I'm quite interested in, in having a little chat about... Um, the Olympic Games, the Winter Olympic Games. <laughs> what a surprise! Because I heard they were on. When, when but... do they, Charles, yeah, when do they start? I'm not sure because it must be any day now, right? Yeah. Well, no, because it's the Olympic movement and it's like FIFA. They start on different days, so they're probably going to be starting in July, just to keep things. Well, well, you don't need snow anymore after all. There may not be any snow. Apparently not. No. Um, so yeah, I just. I mean, I know. <clears throat> I'm British like you both are, but you both live in different countries. I, I'm not privy and privileged to be <clears throat> part of the, the, the Winter Olympics in terms of, you know, f- from the UK, it's always fairly sporadic coverage. And I'm delighted that the uh, the British team, um, Team GB, won a gold in curling. So there's some good news to it. But just sort of more existentially about where the Olympic movement thinks it's going. And as we, as <laughs> here we are sitting um the sort of self-importance of the Olympics at the same time, realising that the Olympics is becoming least, less and less important in the world. There's just something there. And I kind of need, I just need to riff with you guys about it over this show because it feels like the Winter Olympics happened at the same time in the real, real politic of the world. Um, we've got Russia and Ukraine doing all of that. And then you have at a sort of closing ceremony, a former German fencer who's now in charge of the IOC saying, you know, peace in our times and and, and sports self-importance that feels it can make a difference. 
um, when I don't think the Olympics does make a difference much anymore. I think there were perhaps games that did, but now it feels like it's re- as as we've talked about on the show. Just um, I can I know the, way that- I, the, the the guys can't see you listening. The listeners can't see you. I can, and I can see really really see the sadness in your face, Giles. This is annoying you, isn't it? You know, have you got a sense that we're at the kind of like the dunamon of the of the story that you know. Um, whether it's because, like you say, uh, in any country in the world, nobody's following these Olympics unless one of your own gets a medal and then you maybe get into, you know, the last bit of the, the, the news, the news cycle. Um, that's what I feel. Uh, I think the younger generations aren't aware of it at all. And, you know, I hear podcasts because I like to keep up with competitors, hear podcasts talking about sponsors and what their IOC and FIFA strategy should be. And I feel like screaming at the the, the, the bloody radio. Uh, you know, what? Well, my feeling is this, is that I've read and I've read a little bit in the sports industry, people saying, well, the best strategy for the top sponsors is just to suck this one up and sort of don't worry about it. And let's look forward to the next three Olympics in, in other countries. That to me completely misses the point of what the Olympics was supposed to be about a global celebration um, of sport, about a, a chance for the world to celebrate the mundanity of sport in a way that it's sport and we can all celebrate it. Instead, it's become a geopolitical irrelevance somehow. And so your point about me looking sad, I, I mean, it's Monday when we're recording this and I always feel sad on a Monday because the red wine has to stop until Friday <laughs> and all of that. But, 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 I, but what I, I, the reason I'm sad is I started my sports career during the very early 90s where the Olympics, I'm working on Olympic accounts. So I cut my teeth on the Olympics and I loved it. I went to Barcelona and I couldn't believe how lucky I was to be at the Olympic Games. And with all of the the, the ghosts and the people who'd gone before, it felt like I'd already reached the pinnacle and I was a very young man. So I hold an enormous torch, no pun intended, to the Olympic Games and the power of the Olympic Games. And our guest, when he gets them up, he will be fascinating about yes. the philosophy, about what you think about the Olympics and whether um, the Baron de Coubertin values hold any sway now or not. And we get into that. But just, I don't know, if you grew up, as many of us did, where Daley Thompson, Sebco type figure, Franz Klammer, to use a Winter Olympian, or Tor Valandine, let's make yeah, it British. yeah. They they affected your life and it felt like celebration. It doesn't not for the athletes. The athletes are still wonderful in in the main yeah, if they're yeah. unless they're representing an Olympic Committee country. Um, but in the main, they are blameless. But it's what goes with it and around it. And I just I feel a bit bleak about it. I have to say, That's it. Grant, uh, what let do me, you think? Let me let me interject. Yeah, let me interject with a couple of points on that. First of all, one that we touched on. Uh, I think the last time we brought this up, and that is I get a real sense that everybody involved in this Winter Olympics was paying as little attention to it as possible and hoping it would just kind of slip by quietly. I I think that is a very real thing. I don't think um, anybody really wanted to make a fuss about this Olympic, Giles, Um, particularly when you see the the pictures of that ski jump slope, when it was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, whoever conceptualised that is out of their minds. But also I would say with regards the bigger picture, you know, the Summer Olympics contain sports that everybody has participated in, right? We've all, 
we've all run, we've all jumped, right? I mean, we've all thrown things, we've all done that. But the, the Winter Olympics was always filled with sports that the vast majority of people have never had a chance to compete in or try out, right? How many people get to go skiing or, God forbid, curling? Um, and so I think, Charles, that, that when you talk about the Torval and Dean and the Franz Klammer, it was, it was individual athletes that captured the imagination. It wasn't necessarily the Winter Olympics, right? In, in Britain, Torval and Dean came along and the whole country got behind them because they were so fantastic and they, they were a chance of a gold medal. Um, and so there was always that, that thing about the Winter Olympics that would drag you into sports that you, you, you didn't know anything about and you didn't follow. But because of a personality generally a homegrown personality that was doing well, it kind of, it kind of, it brought the media in, it brought the TV in, it brought the public in. So I, I, I've always felt that the Winter Olympics was, was definitely the kind of, the, 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 the cousin of the real Olympics. And I just think this one in particular, um, there weren't really any major global stars competing that they could, that they could build your know, primetime um, TV ads around. And I think it's the real thing, as I said, I, I think everybody, is kind of going, just get this out of the way. Please don't let anything crazy happen during this Olympics. Please, let's get it over with and then we can move uh, on. You- and doesn't that then show, sorry, Rog, just yeah. I wanted to interject on that just very quickly because it also demonstrates the power of marketing and sponsorship and marketeers around big events. If they are switched on, they know that there is a global audience that is engaged. Those 10 top sponsors, plus the many others who are at a more national level or international level, um, would be involved. And they're pushing this diet to try and G up enthusiasm and, you know, sort of, it used to be M people endlessly at the London 2012 Olympics. But it's that kind of vibe. Everybody, as you say, was distancing themselves. And therefore, it was just a case of get through it. And at 16 days, buy a coal burning fire um, uh, sort of power station and let's move on. And it just, it felt wrong. There was a disturbance in the force and I felt it as Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> and I was distressed. I, um, I, I, I hear you. I, I honestly think, however, it's a slightly uh, bigger thing than that. We, we about um, a year ago, maybe more, um, more than that, we talked about the IOC as a model and um, we actually asked on this show, is the IOC model actually holding back sports because it, it kind of like funds them like a sugar daddy um, to keep going until the next time around four years later and there's no constant dialogue. I mean, who's going to remember the curlers who, you know, we've got the, the, the girl from Perth for, for Great Britain uh, and the Italian girl for Italy. Um, we won't hear of them in, in two weeks' time. They, they'll be forgotten for another four years. And so I think existentially we need to ask, what is the future of these sports? You know, in a world where you have got a constant, a constant narrative, what do they call it, a 24-7 uh, narrative around sport is what's needed now. The Olympics is the complete opposite of that. So yes, the China thing, yes, Ukraine, it's a horrible moment, it's uh, COVID, it's a horrible, horrible moment, but I actually think in, in its horridness, it's hiding the bigger problem, which is as sports stroke content stroke entertainment, IOC sports have got a real, real problem. I agree, Rog, and, and you did say this um, about 12 18 months ago about the the fundamental nature of what are sports doing what do they exist to do and for who you remember we had um that nice john inverdale um on the on the podcast about six months ago where he talked about sports that didn't involve they have no 
earthly right to carry on if they have no audience that doesn't engage and that they have to evolve, they have to develop because that is the way of things. And I think you're right. If you have the the kind of the uh, the protection, if you like, of the Olympic movement behind you, it's um, not necessarily something that benefits the sport because you can rely on it. Also, you're terrified by it. You don't want to lose it. You don't want to lose the funding. But what that does is it impedes your ability to necessarily move forward. Mm. And, and it's been really interesting. And I'll, I'll give an example, and I'm sure we'll come on to this sport in a second because we always do. Um, but golf is a really interesting one, right? So when golf um, bid for the Olympics back in 2008 or so, and they won the right to um, host the Olympic Games um, at an IOC meeting in Copenhagen, and I have some involvement with this, and the way that they won is that they pitched the size and scale of the sport, obviously, and also the inclusivity of sport in terms of boys and girls can play, that can be played to a ripe old age. And here is a sport that is perfect for the Olympic movement. And the IOC clearly agreed with that sentiment. And in 2016, eight people watched the golf in Brazil. Probably a bad, it was a bad luck to have the first, your first outing in Brazil in, in Rio, but that, but there we go. That wasn't anyone's fault. But I remember asking at the time the powers that be to say, and this is around in 2010-11, why don't you start doing the mixed format straight away? Why don't you get going with doing the stuff that golf's never been able to do and use the Olympics as the unguent for change to say, let's have mixed formats of, of genders playing together and, and let's just shake golf up. To which the answer was no, the IOC would never allow that. They want us to keep it exactly as it is, i.e. keep on the status quo rather than to innovate. And whilst that's now beginning to happen now, and I think there's a new leadership in golf, which we'll come on to in a second, that may be showing its muscle um, and has done maybe even just in the last few days and weeks, um, there is a fear of the IOC. We've been allowed into the big boys club and now we don't want to lose that. Well, to be honest with you, I don't think that the golf club itself was a particularly small one. It's pretty yeah. powerful, that, and I'm not point. sure how much. And I'm not sure how much golf needed the Olympic Games. That, that, that's my point. It just comes down to what I think I said it the other day. Every sport has to ask itself: What is my governing body uh, contributing, and where is it adding value? And um, you were right about golf way back in in 2000, whenever it was. Um, they didn't innovate because they never innovate. And how's that working out for them? You know, we've spent 10 minutes now talking about how none of us know anything that's happened about these Olympics. And that will continue, continue to be. And, and here's what's going to happen to double this down. Because, you know, when you said that they didn't go for mixed uh, sports, well, now they've got them. Because a guy can classify himself as a woman and destroy an elite field of female swimmers and get a medal. And this is the main thing that, that I was reflecting on over the weekend. Um, you know how much I love people that really go for it in sport, dedication, excellence, you know, like uh, single-mindedness. And, and, and swimmers are the ones that, that I've got most respect for because these are kids that are 12, 13, 14, getting up at four, you know, dark nights, uh, dark mornings, uh, doing, it, doing the hours, then going into school and everything like that. And they get to a position of excellence. Um, and in this case, I think it was college, American college level. This guy, who is a mediocre uh, man swimmer, decides to classify himself as a woman, destroys that field, 
And this is the irony, and, and sometimes irony really is a bitch, because, you know, we've had three, four years of female sport, you know, on the upswing, um, doing well, breaking new ground, sometimes exaggerating, saying things like, why are we not getting paid the same when obviously the market isn't mature to get paid the same? But where are all these uh, proponents of women's sport in the face of something that I'm not kidding could utterly destroy women's sport. Because if this is allowed to pass, it will be allowed to pass everywhere. And then every young aspiring uh, female girl athlete will just say, what's the point? Because at some point a guy is going to call himself a girl and I've not got a chance. Why are none of these kind of like culture war uh, evangelists saying anything when it's threatening the very thing they care most about, which is the furtherance of women's sport. Why is nobody saying anything, Giles? Well, Roger, let me let me take this one. Um, it's interesting because my daughter was a swimmer in school, so I, I you know I I was up at four thirty five o'clock to take her to practice, and and I watched the dedication that all these girls put into the pool and they swim for hours, you know, before school, after school. I mean, it's extraordinary. And and uh, you know, when growing up, my best mate was also a big swimmer. So um, I, I've been around that world, and I totally understand the dedication. You know, the story you're talking about is is Leah Hall, swimmer for Penn State, um, identified as female, and has gone from I think 462nd ranked in the men's swimming to number one in the women's. Uh, is basically breaking record after record after record. Is winning races by you know almost a pool length. And look to your point, the culture we live in makes it very difficult for people to come out and criticise this uh, in an effective and meaningful way because you get shouted down by the mob. However, a couple of weeks ago, some of the Penn State women's swim team came out. There was, a, I think, a letter published, I think, signed by 18 of them, and they were very respectful about Leah Hall and saying, look, you've got every right to do this, but, but, and here's the but, look, you know, we've trained our whole lives for this, we've worked tirelessly to do this and you're taking away our chance to get any reward for all the all the hard work we put in and i have to say that's absolutely right of course that is. so I, I i i take your point rog um I, I i think an answer will have to be found and, I, and i'm sure it will be found i mean maybe you, you know you you run up against the problem of well do we create a separate event for a, a transgender games if you like but then the argument's going to be, well, that's just, but you, see, but you know, putting Grant, in a, in a, point, another point is the There's irony. no easy answer to it. My point is it. the irony of this, that all the efforts that good people have made to raise the profile of women's sports across all sports, from soccer to golf to tennis, and it's been hard because, frankly, uh, sport is, is male, pale and stale. It always has been. And these people have done a great job. And what I don't get is they do not see the existential threat that this kind of thing does to all their good work. It seems as if they are going to be hoist on their own petard of new, modern inclusion and diversity because they're too scared to say what is the obvious common sense, that this is desperately, desperately unfair. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. Giles? Well, I, nothing really more to add. I, it's just, I mean, it, in a sense, and again, we'll come back, I'm tantalising people with our next guest, but 
sport has always reflected the society we live in by definition because sport is a, a product of the society we live in and right now what we're talking about here is um where we are in a certain amount of um discombobulation um about new attitudes coming in and we haven't necessarily centered out on what what would be the sort of the sensible approach particularly in the governance of sport because to Roger's point everybody um who loves sport should want girls and boys to be able to play sport at any level to the best of their ability and to have all of the um uh, uh um all the means available to do that and that should be where the investment of sport comes into and then as Roger says with that you create a market you create demand and then the commercialization of sport follows from that when you have as we do now um uh, sort of the 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 ground hasn't settled yet on on gender and i say that very very sort of opaquely um what that does is allow people to run roughshod over it and then there is a fear of the the uh, illiberal and it's created this situation which is just unfair and and just wrong and no one is necessarily or few people are brave enough to call it and and it needs to happen soon let me ask you giles you're an ex-sponsor um the the races that grant described this girl uh winning by a pool's length uh, going from 400 necks to number one by a mile what is the commercial value of that sporting event for a sponsor for a broadcaster for a fan well, on one level, there's that very short-term thing, which is the kind of, um, it's car crash telly, isn't it? People want to watch because there is interest. Can you imagine it? But very quickly and long-term, that becomes very, it becomes debased. It becomes, um, we talk about this a lot, but authenticity in sport, what what makes sport matter um, is that because people see real competition, real sense of uh, achievement, real sense of battle. The reason we love Federer and Nadal is because of their titanic battles. And we didn't know yeah, who was going to close. Win, but, and, it needs to be close. And it needs to be close and authentic. The moment you put into the mix something which is such unfair advantage, particularly where you're putting morality into the, into the, into the mix as well, I think it's very, very damaging. And, you know, we talk a lot about sort of dystopian culture. What I fear about more the societies we live in is that no one is, it's very difficult to be brave and to speak up for common sense because one fears being absolutely hounded out by the illiberal, um, very much minority with a very big vocal voice who um, certainly in the sports world have really muddied the waters, and that, and that's coming home to roost mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Gents, there's one more thing I think we have to um, discuss. Roger, I'm going to throw this one over to you, and that is the scenes at Man United Leeds, and this plays into something you've spoken about for the longest time in, in, in terms of you know, the, the average football fan. Um, you know, we've seen a, a massive increase in violence at football matches in the UK this season, um, whether that's post-COVID and it's all kinds of stress being relieved in a football ground, I don't know. But what were your thoughts when you saw that, Rog? Well, can I be honest and say that I didn't see it? It might surprise you, but I just had a weekend that I really didn't watch a lot of sport at all. What happened, mate? Oh, OK. Well, look, you, you and I both know going into a Man United-Leeds game, it's going to be an incredibly febrile yeah, yeah. atmosphere, and it they was. They don't like each other. Um, 
No, and they haven't liked each other for a long, long, yeah, long yeah. time. And and you know, reading the coverage, I read a, a story, I think, in the in the Times or somewhere talking about the, the Trans Pennine Express that arrived in Leeds and the guard came over the tannoy and said, Well, welcome to Leeds. Actually, you're not welcome here, but yeah, you know, something like that. And apparently there was like nervous laughter on the train. Um but um, you know, in, all the all the, the Munich chants on the one side and chants about Jimmy Savile on the other side and just just all that kind of caveman like behaviour. But um, you know, United go two up, Leeds pull back to two all, and then United go ahead and coins come raining down on the pitch. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one of the, the Man United, Elanga, the young the young United striker, gets hit by coins, has to get uh, attended to oh on the pitch. Oh my god! Just yeah, just I mean just. Just re- you know, really bad, Roger. We've seen we've seen a lot of this in the not too distant past, and I, and I know it's something that you've you've always had a slightly different perspective on than most. Um, I'm just curious to get get your take on it, and it doesn't need necessarily need to be about the Man United Leeds game, but we've seen a lot of coins get thrown on pitches recently, for for example. Well, and there, you there know, seems like, to be a resurgence of this. It, it is, it is a, a kind of like cornerstone thing that's not only Man United Leeds. If if you look at the Kurt Zuma. Um, kicking the cat thing, right? You know, uh, uh, the, the funny memes, you know, the day after, uh, there's a lot of uh, hammers and, you know, and whatever it was, Bethnal Green or something like that in a pub. And they've, they've come up with a little ditty about, you know, Kurt uh, Zuma kicks a cat. Let, and, and it's all funny, you know, like, you know, Kurt Zuma's a hero. Um, bottom line is football fans are football fans. And we, and it's our fault. It's our fault. Everybody wants to paint them with the Hovis ad of the grandfather and the wee lads going up the hill uh, in some northern town and going into some ground in it, whether it's Hillsborough or whether it's uh, Goodison, and the wee grandson's eyes are wide open and isn't this the beauty of football? That exists, but it's the minority. These people are up for it. Craven Cottage, that's where it exists. Yeah, well, these yeah, I mean, like these people are there to abuse their rivals. They are waiting all week to get it right up them. Now, and until we accept that, we will have this tut tutting forever in a day. This is why no decent sponsor ever sponsors association football. All you get is the ones for the addiction, drink, the old day smoking. Now it's betting. Now it's crypto. It's it's basically cost per acquisition marketing, performance marketing. There's nobody that's getting around association football for its brand values because the brand values suck. <laughs> they do. And and I can't I can't put it any other way. We could go into the fact that maybe social media is making people nastier, less tolerant, much more up for a, a, a fight physical as well. But like you saw at the at the Euros. You know when when the 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 the, the mob uh, attacked Wembley to get into the ground. You, honestly, if you if you don't close your eyes, you see it every weekend, just in a different location, and we cover it up with romance that does not exist. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's it is interesting, isn't it? When you think about the brand value of football, you would think, given the amount of money thrown at it, in terms of, I mean, it's a, it's a juggernaut in terms of cash generation. But you're right, Rod. You get the few the Etihads and the Emirates, and you get a few of these sponsors around there. But in the main, you're absolutely right, and I, and I hadn't actually thought about it. But it, it is. <laughs> it's it's always it's always the shyster companies, the shyster industries that, that get involved and stick their name on on football shirts. 
just Grant, I mean, I love football. It's my sport. I, I, I just love it despite the fact that I know what it is. Um, and you have to embrace the fact that there are moments of dreadful squalidness and moments of amazing passion that you will not find anywhere else. You know, like every every fan can think of one for their own club, you know, whether it's Barcelona 99 for United fans or, 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 or whatever. You know, there's always those moments where you will not get an adrenaline rush like that. And if you're standing beside your son or your grandson or your best mate, uh, you're going to have a moment that you will remember the rest of your life. Um, however, there's the other side and you have to love association football knowing that the other side exists and most people prefer to uh, ignore it and, and that annoys me a wee bit because you can still love the sport whilst recognising it's got famous warts and all and, and you know it's yeah, well put that's what well I put. think well put well, gents, I think it's about that time. Um, Giles, we have a guest joining us who will be familiar to many. So why don't you, uh, why don't you give him a little intro? Thank you, Grant. Well, I'm really excited. Um, I'm always excited by our guests, to be fair. They're always absolute bangers. But this one, I think, is um, a bit special for me. Simon Barnes, um, some will know, is an author, uh, an author of all sorts of different books. And he's also a journalist. Um, but much more importantly, maybe not to him, but to me, he's my sports literary hero. Um, and we talked about how I started off in the industry. He was very, very much a driver of uh, of that. And in the same way, the book um, Sapiens um, by Yuval Noah Harari changed my perspective, perhaps on, on human history. So did Simon's book in 2006-ish, I think it was, um, The Meaning of Sport. But a bit of his own background. He he started writing for the Times, I think, from about 1982, um, and wrote right the way through till 2014, and became the chief sports writer in 2000 to himself. And in that time, as many of these journalists do, he covered seven Olympic Games, no Winter Olympics, interestingly. He didn't like the cold and didn't really consider it to be that important, which I love. World Cups, Wimbledon, Test matches, Super Bowls, you name it, he went to them all. He's not a massive fan of golf as a sport. He doesn't believe a sport that you can smoke in necessarily designates it as a sport, which is kind of interesting. We probably get into that. And he's been very critical of boxing and, and was certainly in that book. So he's not someone that you would agree with with everything. He's quite polemic in his view. He's very bright. But he's written, as I said, 21 books, novels, sports books, horse books. And he's a massive twitcher, bird watching. Many of, many of the UK... Uh, fans who like bird watching will read about his stuff all the time he's a polymath in other words he's got many many strings to his bow and the reason i can't wait to have him on is when i was starting out my own career in sports marketing i interviewed him in 1992 exactly 30 years ago to find out about his take on sport and um i got in touch with him and said we're doing this uh, this podcast series which he knew about and would he would he come on and scratch an itch for me which is 30 years later, what does Simon Barnes think about the world of sport? Well, that's a perfect way to set up, I guess. So let's, let's welcome Simon Barnes. Simon, a very warm welcome to the Are You Not End Same podcast. It's really a joy for, for Roger and I to, to have you on the show. Thank you very much indeed. Wonderful well, to have you, Simon. Wonderful. I, 
I said in the in the preamble, the sort of the big G up to, to having you on this. Um, you, you, I've been a bit of a disciple of yours. You didn't know it, but you had one. I was the <laughs> disciple. Um, and I remember your writing so very clearly, particularly in your heyday at the, at the Times, about your own passion for sport. Explain to our, our listeners about your own personal, where your own personal love of sport came from originally. Where did it come from? Where were the seeds in the young Simon Barnes that where sport took seed? Was it as a young boy or a bit later? Yes, very much so. Very much so. I mean, a number of things uh, contributed to it. First off, uh, playing football and cricket on Streatham Common with my neighbour, John Murta, which uh, just you know was a natural and rightful thing to do. But my taste for uh, watching big sport, watching you know, grown-ups play sport very, very well, came with my grandfather, who lived in uh, King's Heath in Birmingham. And on his retirement, uh, his two daughters um, gave him a, a gift of lifelong membership of Warwickshire County Cricket Club. And every summer we would go uh, up to... Uh, uh, Edgebuston, him carrying our lunch in a, a leather valise. Uh, he made the most thin, perfect sandwiches with a, with a knife. He prided himself on that ability. And we would go there and we would sit in the stands, never in the pavilion because he wasn't a man to push himself forward. But we would sit in the favourite seat in the stand and watch these giants playing this wonderful game. It was just like being transported into a wonderland uh, uh, and with my uh, grandfather's company. It was just a, a, a day full of treats of being um, invested into, uh, into a mysterious and wonderful society. So as you went to university, you went through your academia and, and you started writing, did you decide to be a sports writer or did it happen accidentally? Uh, to, uh, uh, not at all, uh, actually. You know, I mean, people go to university these days. They they they, they people used to get in touch with me and say, "Well, what should I read at university if I want to be a sports?" I said, "Read something wonderful. Educate yourself. Read Shakespeare. Read Homer. Read Dante. Read Proust. Don't whatever you do, spend three years reading me and reading uh, other journalists. There's greater stuff than that. Educate yourself first, and and then move into writing." Uh, uh, subsequently, gave that advice to my nephew who read journalism and said it was the most boring three years of his life, apart from all the cricket he played, because he, unlike me, was <laughs> a damn good cricketer. No, I, after leaving university, I uh, realised the only thing I could do was write, uh, which kind of narrowed the field a lot. So how do you get paid for writing? You go, uh, newspapers will do that. So eventually I got a job as a trainee journalism and... Um, I was doing okay, and then I, I uh, complicated story, but I ended up, I was sent to an office with a guy who was a bully. Uh, not a bully in a kind of a casual uh, uh, sort of way, but a sort of guy who would lie awake at night thinking of good things he could do the following day and then, then bring them into practice. <laughs> he was trying to make me break indentures. He tried to break me, basically. Uh-huh. And I resolved that, you know, I would not break, but I would get the next vacancy in the group wherever it was. And uh, uh, what happened was uh, uh, the vacancy was on sport. I thought, oh, God, can't do that. Sport's for our souls. <laughs> 
I'm going to get that job. I'm going to be that arsehole. And I went to the head of sport in Red Hill, Bill Woodhatcher, dear man and a great man. And I said to him, Bill, I've always wanted to be a sports writer. And he said, Simon, I'd love to have you. And then I became a sports writer. Instead of writing for a bully, I was writing for a guy who said, this is what you're doing is fantastic. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. It would be even better if you just did that. And so I learned from Bill and uh, took it from there. So you're a writer first that happened upon sports. Is that is that really the... the, the, the exactly the, the, that, the, exactly the, the, that. The, 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 a, a writer writes about, uh, mostly writes about uh, human beings. And uh, uh, sport is the most wonderful way of showing human beings in all kinds of conflict. You go well, to the... Well, that was my next question. So what, as a writer, and I know that this has been the subject of a few of your books and many articles, but for those of our, our listeners who haven't necessarily or recently read your stuff, why does sport matter to us? Because it's at the heart of the whole of this industry called sport, this whole of this joy of sport. What, why, what's, your, what's your surmise? Why does it matter? Well, uh, the, the first thing is, is, is in the law that... Uh, Sport does not build character, as Victorian educationists believe. Sport reveals character. Professional sport with a television lens reveals these people to us in the beauties of the action. But the second thing is something I was thinking about today as I was writing a piece for Radio Times about the upcoming Winter Paralympics. Sport can be seen as a courage op. uh, An opportunity to show courage, uh, whether you're throwing for the double top or riding in the Grand National, that requires some kind of courage. And the best kind of sports, uh, it seems to me, require some kind of courage even to take part in. But as we watch uh, sport, we can see courage being shown before us. And courage is one of the most wonderful uh, uh, and important things uh, we can possibly experience, understand, know. Simon, uh, I I absolutely loved your book. Um, I took copious notes because I, I think it's a little bit like an onion in the sense that, you know, I've read a lot of sports uh, journalism, sports books, biographies, autobiographies, but I don't think I've come across a book, and I'm not just saying this, that challenged me as much as yours did. And, 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 and what do I mean by that? Um, there's two or three if not four, five, six different perspectives here that you can read the book under. And, and, and I could probably speak to you all day about all of them. The, the one I'm going to start with is the one you alluded to a little bit uh, earlier when you talked about literature. And I think if I remember correctly, you mentioned uh, Joyce, you mentioned Homer, you mentioned Dante. Um, and I was thinking, all of these people, all of these amazing writers always write about heroes, major, major protagonists. They're not really books or poems about the also-rans. Yeah, they've got characters in there, the Iliad's got loads of characters, but it's all about Achilles and Ulysses. Um, I want to ask you something, and then we'll, we'll peel the onion back. I'm a great believer that sport polarizes between the hero 
the Hollywood box office, if you will, and the the also ran. Is that how you look through sport in that lens, or is it a wider, more Corinthian beauty of participation and everybody's got a role? Yeah, both. I would say. I would say uh, emphatically uh, uh, both. I mean, sport is uh, uh, a narrative, but the nar- narrative, as you imply, is uh, is of a mythology. It's not a, a, st- a story of everyday life. It's about uh, people striving to do great things and uh, succeeding and failing. And uh, that is what gets us. So it is essentially... Uh, a story of um, of in, in which we look for the heroic, but uh, at the same time, uh, sport is very uh, nuanced and gives you a thousand different mm-hmm. narratives and different characters. It can't, it, you can't always tell a story in black and white, and the traditional way of doing so in certain kinds of journalism is to do so. Our boys are great, their boys are, 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 are liars and cheats and so forth, uh, which is one way of enjoying it, but there are there's there's a sense in sport in which uh, everyone is a hero. Uh, Joyce retells the Odyssey and mm-hmm. makes his uh, uh, Odysseus a, uh, a a space salesman and his Penelope uh, a, uh, a part-time soprano who's having a bit on the side. That these these are kings and queens was represented in that. In sport, when you play sport, uh, at the lowest level that I have done, you too can be a hero, at least in your own mind, at least for a moment. And as we watch sport, uh, uh, it's not all about watching the 100 metres final at the Olympic Games. It's also about uh, watching... uh, uh, Red Hill versus Sutton United, as I used to do for the uh, Surrey Mirror. Uh, you find at, at that level you have different uh, different heroes, but ordinary guys I used to drink in the bar with afterwards and uh, knew uh, uh, knew them as or, as very ordinary people, but with the wonderful um, escape on Saturday afternoon of playing sport at a reasonably decent level. Athenian League it was back then. Yeah. Simon, uh, again, you know, the the thing that comes through the book that I really um, um, identified with, if I may, is is that you embrace contradiction, even your own. Um, And I so much feel that myself. Um, And and I'm going to ask you to follow up what you said there, because whilst you do say that, you know, the Athenian League is, is, is valid, a whole lot of the book, your your magnificent book, The Meaning of Sport, is around this um, finding Redgrave, finding Steve Redgrave. Um, mm. and, and, and I read that, correct me if I'm wrong, I read that as almost a sense that those were the titans. And everybody else, and I'm not picking the, 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 the guy out, but, you know, you write a lot about in the book, Tim Hemnam just didn't have that. And there was almost an element of distinction between those that were in the the pantheon and those that aren't. So I'd like to ask you, you know, do you really believe that there's also the glory in the the mundane in sport or it really is about Steve Redgrave? 
again, it's about both. Where we're talking, talk, talk, and it, it's it's the it's the paradox. I mean, we if sport was only had red, the red graves, the, uh, uh, the 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 messes, whoever your 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 favourite uh, performing athlete is right now, it wouldn't be much cop. I mean, quite apart from anything else. Um, it's the Gore Vidal rule, isn't it? It's not enough to succeed. Others must fail. And uh, that is what sport is. Manchester City are a wonderful <laughs> thing to watch at the moment. They're trying to uh, turn sport into to football into something you can control to make it perfect. That they need people to beat. You've got to have, uh, you've got to have, uh, uh, if you want to have a decent league, it's wonderful to have Manchester City in it. And it's great to have uh, Liverpool. Um, it's also, uh, you've got to have Norwich. Do you? Do you really? Uh, to have a league, to have a, it's to, the best way of measuring uh, consistency is not, you can't play football as Bob Beeman did the long jump and fulfil your entire career in about uh, two and a half seconds. You need uh, to do so over a single season. Uh, uh, how many ma match, matches do you need to play uh, to win the FA Cup if you come in at the third round? Would it be seven, six or seven? Maybe five, I'm uh, not sure. Three yeah, or five, yeah. maybe five. Yeah, yeah, that's that. I mean, the, you know, anyone can get, get on a roll and do that. You need to win seven games to win uh, a World Cup. Uh, to measure something over a, a season, that is the way uh, you eliminate chance as, as much as you can and ensure that the best will arrive so you get your 20 best teams and you play 38 games so simon you're, you've been a voyeur of, of sport for a long time <laughs> and, and and peering <laughs> through the keyhole at greatness from, uh, from uh, uh, my, my own sordid side of it yes exactly that <laughs> and and picking through if, if you take that view of rivalry which you're, you're talking about <laughs> you need you need the granularity what what do you reckon to be the greatest rivalries that you have had the, either to watch, not whether you being in the press box or just uh, sitting at home? What are the ones that have stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, I think possibly the most extraordinary uh, rivalry uh, in modern sporting history would be the three-way rivalry between uh, Federer, Nadal and uh, uh, Djokovic. It was seen as the big four at one time, but I think only in this country, because Andy Murray was uh, there. Uh, and had he had the good sense to be born at uh, another time, he'd have uh, he'd be getting close to double figures in slams. But it was not to be. Same as Henman had didn't have the pre had had he the presence of mind not to be born at the time when uh, Sampras was playing at Wimbledon, he'd have won the damn thing. But, you know, so it goes. Uh, yeah, that extraordinary three-cornered rivalry. Nobody will ever catch up with Federer. And now, and now, and now they both have. And, uh, and uh, Djokovic, but for his own uh, uh, extraordinary convictions, would probably uh, ha have to be considered the best of them. If you're going to take uh, an objective criterion for greatness, then... Uh, you have to count it by its Grand Slam singles championships. And what do you make then of Djokovic's, I mean, let's not get, we don't need to get into the whole anti-vaxxing thing, mm. but if you were charting his autobiography, or his biography rather, what would this be part of his kind of 
would this be his kind of um, Icarus moment? Where There's he's something sort of... like that, isn't it? Uh, to decide, I mean, if you dedicate, you'll dedicate your life to tennis uh, and to being the best you could be, and at the same time, the best anybody could be, anybody has ever been. That is a big thing to do. Then to suddenly say, actually, no, there's something more important. And, uh, you know, it's not love, it's not tragedy, it's not uh, 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 anything else. It's it's a, a, a sort of a half-baked stance. And it does seem, you know, could you not think through? Don't you not owe it to sport to to seek greatness but no he's taken it he's taken that decision you have to say okay you make that decision uh uh the world is the poorer for it and perhaps you are simon um i'm going to come back to uh, again my heroes and my protagonists um and it is to do with what what you describe in this book so, so well about you know, whether it's Matthew Pinsent just willing that boat across the line first or not. Um, how much, because this is something I, I personally struggle with as well. Wh what is the definition of self-belief, self-confidence, arrogance, and which of those three are needed to get to the very top if they're not the same thing? Yeah, I don't know quite how you would categorize it. I don't, it's, it's one of those things that's, kind of beyond definition but uh, uh, something you often find after after the event as uh, as it is revealed I think I quote in the book somewhere a line in Kipling's Storky and Co in which uh, uh, the uh, obnoxious teacher King who's a great enemy to Storky and Co speaks of uh, a, a boy called Peter Winner says he's a first class type absolutely first class type and one of his uh, uh, colleagues in the staff room says hardly first class of the second class perhaps yes and how can you distinguish them how can you tell the first class of the second class from the truly first class sometimes it's just a fag paper away from greatness and yet it seems to be uh, a fag paper of steel sometimes uh, the um, yeah henman was a, a classic example uh, uh he didn't have quite have what it took to uh raise his game up to the next level whereas uh other players in the trio we've, we've been well, talking about. Well, Nadal even in, in Australia, the, the last month, Nadal should not have won that match. And, and that was the most extraordinary. Yeah, that is, that is exactly, that is a perfect example of it. You found that, yeah, he had that quality that I, in the book I refer to as Redgrave. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, that extraordinary thing that his... Uh, he made it happen by the force of his will. It didn't seem to be uh, a physical thing. It just seemed to be that his will uh, was overwhelming. It was the most extraordinary of sport. And, and, and you know, so then, then you look at um, the, the other type of sports person, the incredibly talented. And in, and, and, in, and in your writings, you often, you know, refer to these kind of people also in literature. Um, you know, whether that's George Best or, 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 you know, John McEnroe or an Alex Higgins, who for some reason often decide that they're not going to look for Redgrave. 
they're going to just rely on that God-given talent. And many of them along the way are have a career that numbers-wise aren't that amazing, but we all remember them with fondness. T t talk about that element is, and along the lines of George Best, for example. Yeah, well, uh, George Best, uh, uh, the, the, the great story of George Best is the one we all know. Where did it all go wrong? Uh, <laughs> and there's an argument for saying it didn't go wrong at all. He made the decisions he wanted to play. He played uh, uh, great football. He uh, uh, made the hackers and the cloggers look like fools. He scored beautiful goals. Uh, he uh, um, he was the total champion of the lad's great uh, uh, trilogy of uh, football, drink and sex. Uh, it's... Um, if that was what he aimed to do, then you cannot write him off as failure. But but at the same time, Simon, all of us who who you know now it's become a little bit of a trope, the idea that when somebody dies you see all their clips on social media and everything like that. George Best clips are, if we're desperately honest, rather meagre compared to some of the others. Um he basically retired from top class football around twenty seven, which should have been yeah. his peak. Why do we not give him a hard time when we so laud somebody like Redgrave who just squeezes every uh, ounce of juice? Why does why do the talented ones get such a break? Oh, because because he's like you, because he's like me, because he's like us all. We all there's something lovable about that. Oh, I'm so brilliant. I'm so brilliant. I could be so wonderful and yet walk away from it. There's something oh, wonderful about uh, the fall you know, a glorious fallibility that uh, uh, we can all relate to. You know, we're, we're all glorious failures uh, in our different way. I yeah. failed to write a second Ulysses uh, for a start. <laughs> I don't think many, many could uh, aspire to that one. I never got past chapter one of James Joyce. I must admit, with all the will in the world, I, you know, one of the great things in life, Simon, is you've got to re re realize your limitations. And I may have some strong points, but that is not one of them. That was beyond uh, my it's, abilities. It's a, it's, it's a line in uh, uh, Dirty Harry, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and he says, says Callahan, I, w I was 20 years in the force and I never pulled my gun from its holster. And he says, you're a good man, Inspector. <laughs> good man always knows his limitations. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And talking of rewriting mythology into the modern day, I just want to bring this in because it is it is timely and apposite. Um, you you have written a lot about the Olympic Games, both in history and what the Olympic Games. And it's something that Roger and I talk a lot about on on this podcast about what the Olympics does, where the Olympics is. We've just had an interesting Winter Games, which is for all sorts of reasons, geopolitically, in a, in a COVID time, uh, all the reasons we know. But what is your take on the Olympic movement? And this is a huge question, but wh hmm. where is the Olympic movement now compared, compared to, say, 20... Uh, I'll go back a bit. If we remember the sort of Renaissance was Los Angeles after a yep. fairly turgid time in Moscow... Los Angeles kind of shook up the Olympic Games again. Fast forward now to, to 2022 and the, the recent Beijing Winter Games. Where, where do you see the Olympic movement more in general? 
It's a very, uh, in, that's uh, um, a million possible answers to that, and most of them contradictory. The fact, uh, f- fact, the first part is that it produces fantastic sport because in the heartland Olympic sports, the real Olympic sports like athletics, like swimming, like uh, like fencing, uh, like 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 rowing, uh, what matters above all else in your career is a gold medal. Not true for tennis. Not true for golf. Those sorts of things are not heartland Olympic sport. But the Olympic Games come around once every four years. You've got to be right on that day. Um, uh, that was the um, revelation I had going around Montjuic and the bus and the Barcelona Games when there were half a dozen venues you could go by in, in, in about 15 minutes, a bus ride. And I had this sudden feeling uh, on the bus that if I stepped out at any one, took any bus, bus stop, I could walk into a building and see somebody living the moment that all the, his previous life, all her previous life, had been a preparation yes, for. Indeed. And that enthralled me, and that is still true of the Olympic Games. Uh, they keep saying, well, we are going to try and keep politi- uh, politics out of the Olympic Games. What a wonderful idea. I totally uh, agree with keeping politics out of the Olympic Games. What's the first thing that happens when somebody wins? They haul up a national flag and play a national anthem. That's a political act. It is inescapably a political act. Holding the Olympic Games is... Um, for the host, uh, in theory at least, is a great social uh, uh, and political uh, 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 gain. It's a great exercise in soft power. And uh, that has, uh, I mean, if that wasn't the case, why would Beijing try and do it twice over? I was there in the Beijing Games of 2008, and uh, it seemed that uh, this was... uh, an exercise in kind of uh, a kind of rap- moment of rapprochement with the world of saying, you know, where China, we've been a secretive uh, place for a lot of our time, but, you know, let, let's em- embrace our differences and enjoy the sport. And the atmosphere in Beijing was very, very cheerful. And I got to uh, know uh, a number of the locals through uh, uh, a contact I had in Beijing and uh, uh, dined with them and lunch with them and talked with, when you, what do you, how do you see things? How do you see the uh, uh, the government going? And there was, you think that when things are getting easier, things are getting free, as long as these old, uh, horrible old men who run the place don't make a mess of the economy, you know, we're just prepared to get on with our own lives. Uh, you know, the great young people, it was a thrill to meet them. However, it seems rather uh, a darker uh, business this, this, this time, uh, back into to, uh, what we now call sports washing, using uh, sport, uh, sport. Sport is wonderful. We can't help but look at it and love it and think it's wonderful. And if you're associated with sport, then you must be a good guy too. That's why uh, no prime minister can resist uh, uh, a gold medal winner. Just you know, it's photo opportunity. Stand next door to the gold, the gold medal winner, because I will look good. And so, if you London looked good, holding a wonderful games in 2012, London looked good, and uh, uh, the United Kingdom looked good. We, we know this was a great games. We'd given something to the world, and people thought we were pretty neat. Uh, and that was that was that was that was good, but the, the, China is is uh, doing the same thing with that, and it is does seem to be a darker thing these days with uh, uh, 
and a, a covering up of other things, sport as a distraction from the else. And quite obviously, uh, I mean, the Russians were not holding it, but they weren't even allowed to take part <laughs> as Russia because of previous doping enthusiasts. However, they competed in huge numbers as the Russian Olympic Committee, and not entirely by coincidence. At the same time, the Russian uh, build-up on the border of uh, the U uh, Ukraine began. So let's do it now because we're all be, they'll all be far too interested in watching uh, uh, the curling and seeing how our girls get on in the figure skate. <laughs> Simon, uh, on that theme, um, I need to bring up the name Peter Roebuck because it's clearly... Oh, dear Peter, dear, dear Peter, I... Uh, I uh, <laughs> he annoyed I, I, you, I, didn't I, he? I, I, I waited for Peter. He was a, he was a difficult uh, guy. I had a very engagingly spiky relationship with him. He has such a sharp mind and he would challenge me on everything. It's the Oxford person in him. If you um, express a view, he will automatically express a contrary view to get you to get emotional and, and therefore lose a point because his <laughs> mind will still be incisive. But he was great company and, and I, I miss him. Well, he, he, he mentioned to you something that you spent a lot of time um, explaining the difference between nationalism and patriotism um, mm -hmm. yeah. in the context of what you're saying there about um, the Olympics and national anthems and soft power. Um, what does sport need to be aware of to embrace one and to be uh, careful of the other? Yeah, I wish I had uh, uh, a, a good prescription for that and I think it probably comes to, it comes down to the individual um, um, when I watch the England cricket team playing in Australia I I love Australia and what every English person does uh, I love a certain few carefully selected Australians uh, uh, but when uh, England are playing them I want Australia to be absolutely humiliated. Yeah. But I don't want, I don't <laughs> I don't mean anything bad by that. It doesn't stop me stop me loving them. So uh, um, it's one of the those it's it, it's it's one one of those paradoxes. And uh, yeah, to be uh, uh, to enjoy the success of your boys or the people that you, that you like or, uh, and so forth. It's well. It comes down to, in my view, there's a there's a hierarchy of um, the, of the way you enjoy sport. Yeah. Uh, uh, and at the bottom and at the at the lowest level, there there is partisanship. And uh, my boys are going to beat your guys, and uh, that will be great when we do. And I shall I'll feel I'll, I'll feel good, and I'll I'll tease you, and I'll give you a bad time about it, but in the nicest possible way. All that kind of stuff, and that's great. The next, uh, uh, you know, come on, Tim. Uh, the next level uh, uh, of sporting enjoyment is drama. When something, oh God, he's going to win. Oh no, he's lost. Oh no, it's just going. Uh, and that's all very exciting. And you may remember the. Uh, Wimbledon final with Goran Ivanisevic yes. against Ned Rafter. And Goran came in as the wild card and he went through and he was emoting and being brilliant and double faulting on match point and eventually got through. And it was fabulous fun and it was great and it was wonderful for Goran. How many uh, Grand Slam uh, titles did he win? The answer is one. Uh, and and it, was a, it, was a, it was a great afternoon of it. You can have the higher level of... Um, 
a giant sport, and that is the pursuit and capture of excellence. Uh, and that mm. I will find in, which was, I think, my favorite Wimbledon final of all time, which was, I, in memory, was 1999, when uh, uh, Sampras played uh, Andre Agassi. Agassi was at the peak of this form. He'd had his terrible slump. He'd come back. He'd won Paris. Uh, he was to go on and win the US Open. He got to the final of Wimbledon, and he played Perfect tennis, absolutely perfect tennis. Lost in three sets. Sampras took things beyond perfection and played the most, the best serve and volley tennis that had ever been seen. And uh, so that is the third level. And I suspect there's a fourth level. I'm not sure because it's too hard to define. But I think there is a fourth level that involves not only excellence, but some kind of aesthetic dimension to it as well uh, a kind of fierce and terrible beauty well listen that's a great segue to something i wanted to to ask um and i think this will be a, a great section here you you cover so many sports and and, and you've got a, a grasp and a competence and understanding of all of them an amazing understanding but i'm going to ask you something um you've only got the ability to follow five careers in your in your lifetime only five across all the sports that you saw i wrote down what i thought that could be but i wonder off the top of your head if you can narrow it down to just five men or women that you could watch and nobody else in your writing career well it was it's hard to say because uh, as a as a writer that you're um looking for the great story, the stories that you want to tell, that, that move you uh, and that inspire you. Uh, and yet uh, uh, you're also watching sport. Uh, uh, and that and uh, is stuff that give you the most um, um, excitement and pleasure in a different way of saying, wow, yes, brilliant. But that's not necessarily a great story. Okay, so... Uh, so without separating them and, and without trying to... Um, well, in a Venn diagram, they will, they will overlap those moments yes, with, exactly with the top that, five. Exa exactly that. Okay, well, I think we'll have to throw Redgrave in there since yeah. we've talked Got about him. Uh, Ayrton Senna, I, I, I would say. Didn't have The, the, the self-made martyr for sport. Martina Navratilova, who took women's sports into one. a new dimension. Um, I think as a wild kind, I might throw in Fu Ming Sha, the Chinese diver, who was the little waif of Barcelona at 13. She won the gold medal at 13. Then Atlanta, uh, two years later, she put on 30 pounds. She can now make the springboard go as well. So she won a double gold medal. <laughs> she then went away to be a student and uh, got stuck into the noodles a bit. And somebody <laughs> said, said to her, were you really an Olympic athlete? And she thought, oh, you think that, do you? And she went back into training on her own terms and trained because she had her stature she now had the chinese establishment um were a little frightened of her and, and stayed allowed she said so she trained once a day because that's what she thought was right she grew her hair she put highlights in it and she won the uh her fourth gold medal in sydney so yes that was that was a tale that i very much enjoyed 
uh, being a part of. I remember uh, doing an interview with her after she won Atlanta, and uh, I had a question to, through her to an interpreter, and uh, uh, said, um, divers do lots and lots of exercises on dry land stretches and pools and stuff, so they can make up these fantastic shapes in the air. And said, uh, what is the hardest exercise uh, that's part of your routine? She said, the only exercise I don't like is one I can't do. And she gave me the Paddington Bear hard stare. And I thought, yeah, yeah. The, she, she's got red grateful, right? That's, okay, that's, she's in the list. I think that's four. Yeah. Um, yeah, one more. Well, let, let me let me throw a couple at you. Um, um, yeah. Two in, two in cricket. Um, Warren. Oh, forgot. Yeah, you forgot a lot. Wait till you see. Yeah, absolutely. You no, it's, we've Warren, talked about Warren or both of them. Warren, Shane Warren or both of them. You can only sure, pull Warnie one. Would, yeah, Warnie, Warnie would certainly uh, certainly be in there. Uh, he's uh, not only because he is. Uh, uh, a wonderful cricketer, but he also uh, uh, goes out of his way to be pleasant to people. You, you think he had the right to kind of walk straight past anybody, but he's a guy who always stops and says hello and uh, uh, and stuff. When I was working in cricket press boxes, and he was as well, you know, he made a point of being pleasant, and you don't have to do that. Ian Botham, we got to mention Ian Botham. Yeah, talking about uh, stories, there can't be a bigger story than. He was a wonderful like. story in as a, as a, as, a, as an a, a narrative arc. Uh, uh, you, yeah, it was uh, a, a great story. I'm, I wasn't there writing about sports in 1981. Uh, kind of uh, wish I was. I wrote about was writing about him uh, in his golden haired decline. It was uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It was yeah after. Um, Tim after, Hudson was that after, Tim Hudson? He was his agent, wasn't he? That was correct. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. He met Tim Head, Head, Tim Hudson, and his hair turned quite gold from grief. <laughs> <laughs> Any more, Roger? On your yeah, Simon uh, Barnes, I've, I've got, on your uh, binger, Brian Clough. Surely, Brian Clough is, is one of <laughs> Brian, the... Brian Clough was not a guy I had very many personal dealings with, uh, and besides, uh, he's a coach. Uh, it's not about coaches, it's about athletes. Uh, um, sure, I mean, coaches make good stories and good good, good things to tell, but it's, it's it, you know, I, 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 if, if uh, put me in charge of sport and every way in which the coach can interfere once the game has actually begun, I would cut down to a minimum, no timeouts, uh, as fewer substitutions as possible. You make your decisions, hand over to the athletes, let them do it. That that's uh, that would be one I would push back on, Simon. Uh, especially with Clough. You know, if you remember, um, if you want to personify his turnaround of Nottingham Forest, it would be what around and Derby one, before that. Yeah, but on Nottingham Forest, if you put it in one player, it was that fat lad on the left wing that smoked a lot and, and was overweight. Um, that uh, won two European Cups, John Robertson. Um, there yeah. is a whole there is a whole generation of players in these islands that um, would have been nothing but journeymen if not for Brian Clough. And, and, and you know, I, I, I love my athletes, but I also love my Shankleys and Steen and Busby and Clough. Yeah, well, Clough was, uh, Clough's great genius was to take uh, decent players and make them into uh, first-class players, at least first-class of the second class. He never dealt with uh, out-and-out great players. And imagine 
uh, Clough trying to uh, manage a team with uh, Johan Cruyff in it. Yes, that's true. That's true. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I would have paid good money to, <laughs> to see it. Or Maradona. Or that would have been difficult as well. Uh, yes, absolutely, though, for different reasons. Yeah. I, I've got one more, and then I'll pass back to the captain here. Um, Steve Ovet or Sebastian Coe? You only had to follow... I know their careers were linked to the hip, but if you could only follow one of them, which one was more attractive to you? <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it, it's, it was one of those uh, uh, party games in which you reveal who, what kind of person you really are. Exactly. Uh, of course, I loved uh, Ovette's piratical uh, uh, way of doing it. I'm, you know, I'm doing it off on my own, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, pl I play the bad guy and, and all that kind of stuff. That was that was great fun, and he he played it to perfection. But um, it was uh, 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 co uh, uh, turned out to be the winner. If you even if you're only thinking about athletics, Co had that complete uh, ruthlessness uh, uh, about him. There was the um, one when he, he lost uh, in Los, Los Angeles. No, not Los Angeles, in Moscow. He lost the 800 yeah. metres. Uh, um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed, if, you're, if the story is appropriate. No, you can. Uh, you can use the C word. You can use the C word. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know the story. Well, but you can tell it for everybody else. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, uh, uh, the reason that he lost the 800 metres, for which he was favourite, was because he didn't run fast enough. I met the guy, uh, his name has gone from me now, I can see, who found himself leading the 800 metres. He said, what am I doing at the front? Something has gone badly wrong with this race. And, uh, and it was the, what had gone badly wrong was that Co was seized up with nerves and didn't run fast enough, didn't impose himself on the race. And so it was nicked from him by Steve Ovet. And in the press conference afterwards, his father and coach, Peter Co, uh, was sort of mooching about afterwards, trying to work out how to put this, uh, to find the mot juste for what had mot gone juste. wrong. And eventually he went up to his son and put his arms around him and said, you ran like a cunt. And... Uh, <laughs> Coe said, you know, it was the perfect remark. He said he just fell, I mean, probably wanting to die. He just fell about laughing and said, that is exactly what I did. That was what I went wrong. I went wrong, not because I wasn't good enough, but because I ran like a cunt. And so uh, in the 1500 metres, he didn't. He ran... Um, uh, like an angel or possibly yeah. like a cheater or something or somewhere in between the two and had that was that photograph we'll never forget of him crossing the line so he won that one on sheer talent sheer talent and uh, a willingness to the ability to set the most hideous disappointment aside four years on injured written off not going to make it uh, uh, there was a point when he was obviously in a, uh, 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 on the bend. He was going to lose it. Uh, he was he was not enough. And from somewhere, he found the speed to win, and it came out in pure rage. It was absolute rage against the world. And he turned to the press box and uh, 
I wasn't there at that one, but he turned the press box, stabbing the air with his finger as if he wanted to do it in injury, just shouting and shouting, who says I'm fucking finished? Yeah. And that rage carried him through to his own uh, victory and uh, fulfilled his athletics career. Uh, can't remember what he did after that. <laughs> but no, no, I had a lot to do with Ko uh, uh, during the build-up to the uh, Olympic Games. And... Uh, um, uh, not a man I would uh, uh, necessarily um, to, wish to work for, but very tough, very hard, very effective, uh, uh, and nothing but respect for what he did. Simon, you um, have spent a career um, painting the pictures that you have with us today about the heroes, the villains, the 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 the, the colour of sport, and also explained and keep on explaining the difference and nuances of why sport um, hits us between the uh, the eyes and, and, and in the chest cavity all the time. In the time that you started um, writing, I think first of the times in about 1982, writing about mm-hmm. sport, you, you've never stopped, as well as the other things like your novels, horses, bird watching, and all the rest of it. But in that time, in the, in the 40 years um, that, since you started penning paper around sport, the money that has has got into the sports industry has grown and grown and grown. And yeah. we're even talking about nation states now, though one might argue that Mussolini understood that in the 30s in terms of geopolitics. But the money now in sports, as we've seen with the rather un, unsightly um, greed um, that we've seen in golf, which is a greedy mm. sport yeah. anyway, d- does that big finance of sport when we look at the purity of sport, do you think, A, the finance people understand the nuance of sport? And does it worry you that sport has become so big and so it, unwieldy? It's, it, it's the, I think the, the main problem is putting the money people in charge of sport because as uh, you've taken it away from the Blazers who were... Uh, 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 Based, uh, had, had this pleasant uh, uh, don't rock the boat old boy uh, uh, hypocrisy about them uh, into, into the suits who were uh, uh, there about, you know, if it makes money, it must be good. Uh, it's hard to say that, to condemn that as a, um, uh, as, as a moral failing because that's how they've been taught. That's how uh, they have been brought up to appreciating. If it makes money, it's good. And so uh, time and again, sport looks not for the best in itself, but for the most profitable in itself. And the most obvious example is cricket and the way uh, that uh, uh, test match cricket, which is uh, uh, profound, uh, has given way to things like uh, uh, 2020, which is good fun. Uh, It's... uh, uh, Throwing uh, well away the great uh, uh, because the, the the less great makes makes more money, and that seems to be not a a, a good decision. The hundred uh, has some good things about it. Most obviously, uh, uh, giving parity to the men's and the women's game, but the whole notion of getting together a sport and totally alienating your heartland seems to me reckless and dangerous. Making Let's make cricket for people who don't like cricket. 
and all these we're getting a new audience but a new audience is by definition fickle your heartland audience is faithful say oh well they will always have them we don't have to look after them and that is not only a moral betrayal but it's uh, not necessarily true uh, you will uh, you will lose your if you, if you uh, betray your core it's audience so enough they'll, they'll, they'll go this. so important to hear this and you know of all the, of the three of us on this podcast myself giles and our absentee uh, co-host grant who i could hear actually saying those words many times over the last two years um, I'm probably the one that, that that embraces the necessity of running a business more than any of the other two, but I completely get what you're saying. I completely get it. And uh, Simon, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is. And this comes back to what I said to you about the contradictions in your book and embracing contradictions. There are certain days that I will just weep that they are they are changing the formats of what is five-day cricket or four rounds of golf. And and, and and there's a story there of it within um, a round of golf on the third day, moving day, they call it. There's so many colours around that. And then somebody says, but a kid won't watch that. And I say, you're right. And I don't know what the answer is, Simon. You know, I just don't know. Yeah, well, it's there are two two things. I mean, two things. If you if you know, if you uh, uh, cheapen your product, then you're 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 you're, you're, you're going to lose some, you know, something. If you, I mean, it depends on on whether you value the soul of what you're doing. Uh, and uh, investing in souls, I would say, is a long term investment. But most people <laughs> the church are has looking, been going two thousand years looking for looking for something on the short term. Quick, quick bit of drama. People come in and watch it. Uh, watch it. And that's great, uh, and that will go. But leaving the, uh, uh, the the sport just a little more uh, tawdry as a result. Well, listen. This is this is so important that I want to ask you the same thing about your profession, because you know um, it has changed dramatically from when you were involved, where people were very willing to play pay for high quality journalism, long form. Um, and the, the the business of newspapers allowed that to happen. Now it doesn't because it's been unbundled for eyeballs and everything like that. And guys like you are rarer and rarer to find. So, you know, it, it's, it's awful easy to say, you know, we mustn't cheapen the product. But at the end of the day, we have to pay the bills, do we not? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm no kind of businessman can't even fill in my own expenses for uh, properly. But uh, if you look for the short-term gains, then you are uh, you're, you're you're putting the long-term uh, uh, future of what you're selling at risk. Uh, that's uh, that that is what I would say. So, so let me let me ask that in the in the context of the Olympic Games, which is feels like it's anachronistic we talked about the blazers we talked about like fifa you've got a, a, a different style governance it's old school governance in a modern world the olympic games has to remain relevant and as you say there are the core sports like the running jumping throwing swimming kind of sports which are fundamental both in the history and fundamental to the human existence that people can understand that if you run very fast a lot of people would understand how fast that is so if you were in not if you were in charge of the olympic games that's too much for a podcast but how much <laughs> how much would you 
you know, when I say I look at the Winter Olympics, some of the things I'm quite critical about the Olympic movement, yeah. but not things like snowcross and stuff like that. They've yeah. they've kind of modernised skiing to make it more um, ex- uh, um, acceptable and watchable for a younger audience. How much do you toy with tradition, and how much do you innovate? Or maybe that's too broad a question, but yeah. for me, it's, it's fascinating. If you if you if you start fiddling with the basic things of sport, you are doing something dangerous, but not necessarily fatal. The tie break in tennis was uh, was damn damn good thing. That's worked well. I would still hold out for a no tie break in the fifth set personally, but you know, but but is a proper test of tennis ability. It's playing tennis under pressure in tennis, all points are equal, but some points are more equal than others, and that is the system on on which the game's played, and that's how the, um, the tie break works. Uh, penalty shootout in football has been a complete disaster and has led for uh, uh, bites prioritising drama over greatness. You've got cheapness ahead of something worthwhile. So you get a series of knockout games that are play. They go on for two hours and they get, you know, after about 20 minutes, everybody says, well, you know, don't want to lose it, though, because if we draw, we'll get we'll get penalties and we might win that. And even if we lose, nobody will blame us because it's not proper football and everybody knows that. And then you go on uh, to manipulate sport again and you have the ending of the... Um, Formula One uh, season. Wasn't that dramatic? Wasn't that dramatic? Except it was a complete, total and utter betrayal of the sport. It was, how can you take it seriously? Say, well, okay, I tell you what, we'll change the rules and call him champion, even though it was, that was, we made a total mess of things. And so, uh, yeah, that is what happens when you try and make your sport sexy. You try and make it attractive to uh, um fickle people Simon it's interesting you bring up Formula 1 there obviously one of the most technological sports our sponsor Sports Digita is a company that's using technology to bring sport to life in many many different ways Um, so when you look at what happened at the end of the Formula 1 season last year um, and all the technology they were using um, that last half hour or so if you were writing the article in an hour after the end of it, would you be headlining it, cock up or conspiracy? Yes, yes. It's one of the things. I mean, I suspect that uh, there was a certain amount of marketing pressure on having a fresh champion and a certain uh, a certain goodwill existing to to uh, towards that. Uh, uh, freshening things up, not same old, same old. And uh, I, yeah, that I, I would, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it was conspiracy. In that uh, somebody was, t- uh, uh, Marcy was t- told actually to to do that. But I think there was a certain sympathy among the people who pay the bills in this totally money orientated sport. Say, well, let's. Uh, you know, it would be nice to have a fresh face, wouldn't it? Um, and uh, dare I say it, a face that's not so terribly black either. Perhaps that was involved. You think? Who is to say? Who mm. is to say? But certainly what happened was not sport. Uh, if you manipulate sport, uh, then it ceases to be sport. It's, it, it's like sports fixing. It's like when you fix the sports fixing scandals in cricket. If you think it's fixed, it's not sport. It's not worth watching. It becomes uh, um, 
sport without sincerity uh, uh, is like um, living on the earth without gravity. It's just not 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 a possibility. And, and is that lie at the heart of actually your sports philosophy? Is that if sport is not authentic, whether it's at the Nuneaton under 11 Bs playing against their local rivals, Kidderminster, or whether it's at the very top level, if it is not authentic that people are trying their hardest and it is binary and you don't know who's going to win until the, the, the deed is done, it is not exactly. sport. Exactly, exactly. When I played uh, village green cricket, there were two kind of uh, uh, unacceptable people. Uh, and it was uh, the, There were those who took it with life and death uh, uh, serious, seriousness, uh, uh, who would uh, fail to be competitive, and those who were just messing about. If you don't care, it's not sport. Uh, I mean, sport is the world's greatest triviality. Uh, it means it's, it, it, it is a, a nugacity. Uh, uh, sport, um, you have to play sport as if your life depended on the result in the sure and certain knowledge that it doesn't. <laughs> wow. So true. Oh, wow. Simon, see that kind of line you come up with there? Um, this takes us on to the last little section I want to ask you about. Um, you know, I, I've been in and around sports journalists um, quite a lot, and I've seen the difference between what they used to call the, the, the heavies and the tabloids. Uh, and, and you know, uh, my sport, I would say, mostly has been football. And football, I think, in a lot of ways, has got this kind of like inverted snobbery around mm. guys that can write the way you do. Mm. What, did, did you ever find in the press box guys kind of sneering a little bit because you could put um, um, a Homer quote into a piece that for them was just he scored in the 80th minute and took home the victory. I've been hammered, I've been hammered, I've been hammered all my career uh, 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 for that in various different quarters. Uh, uh, if for your I mean, sport, if you like sport, it's prima facie evidence that you're stupid. Uh, to uh, attempt to take an intelligent perspective on it, then it, you, you're still stupid, but you, so therefore you're pretentious. So yeah, I've been... Um, mocked throughout my career for uh, the fact of trying to buy tr for trying to look at sport intelligently never let the mockers set the agenda yeah no uh, listen that's why I, I found this book um of yours so profound like i said at the start you know i i, I could sense all these different perspectives and some of the things that that, that i myself suffered a little bit especially in football and um, mm. so, so, so one question I wanted to ask you, and this is, this could be flippant or not, because it's clear that you respect the guy. Do you think Hugh McIlvaney liked you? No, I don't think he did very much at all. And why not? Um, I, th I it's, um, trying to walking a tightrope uh, and trying not, trying not to be flippant because Huey was a, Terrific Sunday paper journalist. Uh, he was um, he was uh, he was uh, uh, superb at what he did for, for many many years. And uh, he also acquired a following. He also uh, was a master at building a persona through which he wrote, which was tough, manly guy. Tough, but 
kind of sensitive uh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, 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 well-read, but uh, yeah, well-read. Never man, forgot man. his roots, was still in touch yeah, with the working man. Kind of exactly stuff, exactly that, that, that kind of stuff. And uh, um, yeah, uh, so... Uh, Do you think he was jealous? Do you think he thought you were better than him? I wouldn't. I, I don't think uh, that thought would have penetrated uh, <laughs> to Huey. I think he probably was aware uh, that um, I thought I was pretty. I thought I was pretty good, and I didn't feel that I had to uh, uh, take the knee to use today's phrase. Uh, I didn't feel humbled by his presence. Great admiration, as I have said. But I didn't think, my, how can I aspire to such heights? And I think Huey was well aware of that, and it irritated him. That and many other things. <laughs> and of course, you didn't like boxing. Well, that was the main uh, uh, problem. Uh, well, well not, uh, uh, main problem I had with, with many people. Uh, I, you know, it seems to me that a sport in which you deliberately seek to inflict uh, more da brain damage on your opponent than you yourself sustain is not really um, uh, a, the right way to uh, a play sport. It's uh, it's 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 not a metaphor. It really is a death duel. So uh, um, yeah. So I I uh, I pulled back from that. And uh, for Huey, that was, uh, uh, that was kind of, uh, yeah, it was, it was spitting on the high altar. Yeah. One last question for me, then I'll let the captain ra ra um, wrap it up. Um, what do you feel about this modern trend now that um, you have to be an ex-player? Um, unless you've actually been on the field, you don't have a right to comment. Um, I, I know it's a leading question because I guess I know the answer, but, you know, um, how bad is it the kind of like, well, you can't comment, you've never tasted the sawdust of the stage. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a valid point. Uh, and I've worked in the, the, the cricket boxes full of uh, ex-cricketers and I've been uh, delighted to have them as not only uh, colleagues, but friends. And uh, I've sat around many a table with... Uh, uh, with ex-pros and uh, uh, not only uh, enjoyed their company, uh, you know, talk rambling, but what listening, exchanging views on crickets. Uh, most of the guys who work in the uh, uh, in the cricket press box stuff, uh, you know, are interested in uh, uh, in your views. I come at it from a different uh, aspect. Uh, I haven't spent my whole life. Uh, in one sport or even in my whole life in sport I've got a whole load of other uh, reference points uh, and uh, yeah and that's you know, with with uh, the, those the people like Peter Roebuck that we've been talking about uh, people like Michael Atherton uh, who I sat next to through many many test matches always enjoyed their company and it's been a give and take not kind of you know what do you know kind of stuff. Is, is, is that what you think? I mean, if I, I wouldn't, I would, if it comes to technical issues, uh, um, I would obviously say, I mean, uh, um, Mike Selby showed me how you bowl a Dusra. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 
because you know he, he understands the technicalities of the game better than I ever will. However, uh, he would uh, never defer to to my views, but he would accept that I might have a view on uh, 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 whether or not we should play uh, uh, Ben Folks uh, instead of uh, uh, Joss Butler as wicketkeeper. Amazing, Simon. We um, genuinely we have guests on who um, Roger and I um, think that we we might want on for a little bit longer, and, and you are definitely one of those. Um, <laughs> in as far as I, well, I've read all of your books on sports, certainly I'm I'm still I'm not yet a twitcher, but I'll. <laughs> I'm sure to try that I'm sure that will come later on um for me and I hope so um but what you've done um over the years is is for those people in the UK in particular who read your re- regular articles for the times um for all of those years was that you helped put sport in a sort of mental way for us reading our breakfast that you could maybe have followed the same rugby match or cricket match or tennis match or whatever it is and put another perspective. So my question for you in closing before saying thank you is, is there another book in you in sport? Another book on sport? No, no, no. I'm not sure that there is, you know. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that there is. Uh, I wrote uh, a book uh, after, after I left the Times, uh, uh, I looked at all the, my uh, cuttings and uh, uh, shells of them. I was wondering why I had cut them out and stuck them in for a start. So what was it all for? What was what was I doing in all that time? Really? So I wrote a book called Epic uh, to try and make sense of it, but uh, not as a, 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 a um, an autobiography. In fact, the, the only time I used the word I talking to, about me was in the introduction. It was the ultimate sacrifice. But uh, the idea was it was the autobiography of sport as told to me. I was sports uh, uh, ghost write, writer and the uh, uh, story exclusively told to me was one that uh, took place over 32 years of, uh, of regular travelling for sport. Well, I hope that you reconsider. I think there's one left in you. So um, but I'll, I'll leave I'll leave that you, with you. Do you, you have a theme for it? Let me know. Well, well, well Roger well, and I will here, come up with that. Here's an idea. Here's an idea. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought of this, but Giles has just given a great question there. Um, it's, it's a long, long time. It's over half a century that England has not won a major football tournament. And... The reasons why that is, at the same time where we've had 30 years of dominance by the Premiership, is incredibly complex. Uh, I've heard versions of theories for a long time, and some of them are good and some of them less so. And, 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 you know, I think if you did that book together with the linkage about how England has changed, certainly in the last 10, 15 years, uh, almost going towards a little Englander type. Do you know what I mean? It takes you into that whole yeah. nationalism thing. I yeah, think no, that would I be a get, knockout book. Well, I've got the answer for right, right from the beginning. English uh, footballers run uh, for the Premier League, not for the England football team. So that would be a one-page book. That would be it. <laughs> <a, laughs> that would it's certainly like, be the thesis. You could possibly amplify it. 
Well, that's like a haiku, virtually. I mean, yes, we yes, could do absolutely. that. No, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, I often wish that uh, I, I, instead of you know the Olympic Games having to write three thousand words every day, I could write three lines of a haiku just to spend the rest <laughs> of the day kind of thinking about. It. Well, well, Simon, on behalf of all of us that are you not entertained, we are so genuinely grateful that you could give us some time to to, to share with you what is a, a lifetime in sport that has genuinely made many many people but most importantly me very happy and I, I told the story earlier 30 years ago you were good enough in the press box at Wimbledon to let a young boy who was a student try and understand a little bit about the sports industry and, and you gave me an hour of your time then uh, in the cafeteria at Wimbledon and I have I still got the it. note I have still got the notes and you, uh, a career was born from, from that moment. So personally, thank you very much. But also on behalf of all of our listeners, it's been really wonderful. No, it's been a good, good fun checking some ideas around. It's sport. It's sport. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Simon, I'd just like to, uh, I don't really know you anywhere near like Giles does, but this is the best thing I can say. I think you're the kind of guy I would have liked to have been. And I just don't have the chops. <laughs> that's the best I can say. Well, we we must discuss it uh, uh, some more over that uh, that that nice ni nice drink you make up there in Scotland. I forget <laughs> its name now. Yes, two whiskies in, and the truth comes out. Uh, a, 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 a Glen Morangie or maybe a Dalwhinnie or a Loch Lomond. Uh, or a Loughlin. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had one of those. Should I should should I uh, expand my uh, my yeah, mind wonderful whiskey? Absolutely, maybe oh, the best on the market. <laughs> it's the best on the market. Well, I, I haven't been wasting my time. Then I've got uh, uh, I have uh, uh, a clear agenda. Thank you, you Simon. Thank Simon, you so much. Simon, it's been lovely you. talking to you both. Thank you. Be senior. Senior. Hope Thanks, so. Simon. Thanks. Wow, Giles. Um, I don't know what to say. I'd, uh, first of all, I'd like to say this. I'd like to say that you were incredibly generous giving me all the space there because this is your guy. This is the guy that was a mentor to you and you would have been able to fill that hour yourself with amazing anecdotes and memories and, 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 and insights. And um, so thank you for giving me that time. Um, well, don't be silly because I think with, with, all, with all of the guests that we have is that um, listening to them and listening to the uh, perspective, um, particularly someone like Simon, who is by definition a thinker as well as a writer, um, but particularly in the nuance of the, the kind of shows we put out and what we're trying to talk about the sports industry, um, that is a perspective you don't often get to hear. And for every finance person, and I genuinely mean this, for every person who is involved in the business of sport, if you can get your hands on a, on a copy of The Meaning of Sport or indeed books like um, that, that Ed Smith has written as well about why sport matters, which was one of Ed's great books, and he was very much a disciple of Simon, you get a much better understanding of why sport works and why sport matters to people and therefore why sport has potential for, for, for commercial growth, for business growth and to take it along the line. And I think that we've heard from people over on our podcast over the years, some who really get the, the nature of fandom and the nature of sport and I hope they will do well. And sometimes we meet people and you go, they're money people and he even mentioned it. You know, Mammon has a, has a, has a role but if you love sport, you want the people to be more adherents of people like Simon Barnes. 
Yes, I would just put an example on that. I think if people were listening to Simon or indeed had read the book that I read for the first time uh, last week, they wouldn't be making mistakes like um, Phil Nicholson made uh, or the Super League last year. Um, it's clear that, you know, Simon takes a point of view that, that, that in my business world of sport is, is, is different, but I feel that that kind of sense check every day from somebody like him makes you a better financier in sport. Well, um, listen, I hope everybody enjoyed this the way that we did. I hope it didn't come across as too um, self-indulgent because I could have talked all day. Um, if you do like what we do here, um, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. If you want to follow us, you can follow uh, the podcast. Twitter handle is uh, EntertainedR. That's the word R. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can follow myself uh, for what it's worth at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Rog, that was a blast. Thank you so much. No, and thank uh, look you. forward to the look forward to the Incredibly next Incredibly generous. And thanks to everybody. Thanks, James. Thank you.